Now comes retake test. Peter, I'm going to ask my disciples, who do you say I am now? Now that you've seen all these miracles, now you've seen my calling card of wine, now you've seen the bread multiplied, I'm going to ask you, who do you say that I am? Verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying by himself, and his disciples were nearby, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? So we'll start with a little thing. We'll quiz you on what the crowds are getting. Okay, let's take a poll first and then see where you fit with that poll. They answered, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others that the one of the prophets of long ago has risen. Then he said to them, but what do you, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. So remember, Christ is the Greek version of Messiah, which is the Hebrew, of the anointed one. You are the anointed one. You are the one that we've been looking for that comes from Judah, according to Genesis 49. You are the one who has the right to multiply the grain and the wine and the olive oil because you are the anointed one. So Peter, at this point, gets it. He gets that Jesus is not just another teacher, not just another prophet, that he is the Messiah the anointed one. So yay, he gets it. Then, for the first time ever, Jesus talks about his death. But he forcefully commanded them not to tell anyone. Remember, he's controlling the clock on his crucifixion, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders chief priests and the experts in the law and be killed and on the third day be raised. First time where he announces, I'm going to die. I must die. I'm going to Jerusalem specifically for the purpose of dying. That is my sole purpose of going to Jerusalem, to be betrayed and to be killed. Remember, The disciples and everyone in Israel has a concept of the Messiah coming to kick the rear end of the Roman Empire and to establish Israel as the throne over the world. And they are absolutely correct. But what they don't understand is that he must defeat the spiritual powers that hold us in slavery to sin and death before he can defeat that the, the symptoms the, of that in our material realm. He is going to be a conquering king, but he's conquering in one way through the cross and then another way in the book of Revelation through the sword. Now, we all know that in the other Gospels in Matthew, Peter specifically says, no, you're not going to die, Jesus. And Jesus is like, oh, Peter. If you would have just stopped talking after you got the first answer right. <laughs> okay? It's like you got all the multiple choice right, but you just bombed the essay at the end. Like, don't write extra information at the end if you don't know what you're talking about. And so Peter shows, and he says, get behind me, Satan. Now, we know that he's not really calling Peter Satan, but this is the will of Satan. Will, Satan goes contrary to the will of God. And by Peter standing in the way of the purpose and the will of God, that he's showing that he stands in the path of Satan. He is in the same path as he is doing the same thing he does. Verse 23, Then he said to all of them, If anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, 
Take up his cross daily and follow me. For anyone who wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses life for my sake will save it. For what does it benefit a person if he gains the whole world but loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words and the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father of the holy angels. But I tell you, most certainly, there are some standing here who will not experience death before they see the kingdom of God. Just as, as I am going to sacrifice my life in obedience to God in order to accomplish his will and to expand his kingdom, so if you want to be called my disciples, you must sacrifice your life to God in order to expand his kingdom and do his will. You must deny yourself and you must take up your cross and follow me. Well, what is the only thing that they know a cross is used for? Death, execution. Like for us, we don't think of that as the primary thing of a cross anymore. For us, it's a symbol of hope and redemption and salvation. But for them, the only thing that they know is one of the most horrific deaths that humans have ever come up with that they see on the side of the road reserved for the most horrid criminals or the people who had the audacity to speak out against Rome in some kind of way or just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so for them, this is a horrific way of dying. And Jesus says, take up your cross and kill yourself. Now, obviously, he doesn't mean that literally. But the, the power of this is, not my will be done, but your will. And when we get, Lord, how shall we pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What he's saying is, you're not meant to build your own kingdoms. You're meant to build my kingdom. You are meant to kill and deny and crucify yourself, meaning your dreams, your desires, your goals, your plans. This is hard as an American. We're all about the American dream about what we want to accomplish, about what we want to build. Follow your heart. Just do it. Have it your way. You deserve to be this kind of life. You deserve to be comfortable. America is built around our comfort and entertainment. There's a really good book called Amusing Ourselves to Death mm -hmm. and How It's a Disease in Our Culture. And even as older people, it's, it's hard to not think like we're all thinking, oh, I would love to do this remodel project to my house. I mean, I'm guilty of that. I love to do this and that. And I'm not saying, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that's wrong. We don't want to go all like, we don't want a pendulum swing and go the other extreme where you read the book Radical and he makes you feel guilty for not living in anything less than a cardboard box. Okay? Like, I mean, he has great ideas, but he's like, if you, if you have anything more than a cardboard box, you should be ashamed of yourself. He doesn't actually say that, but that's really just strong impression. That's not healthy either. Because Jesus is also going to tell you to use your wealth to win and influence friends. And, and he blessed Abraham, and he blessed David, and he blessed Solomon. That's not the point. The point is, are you pursuing that because you want it for your own comfort, your own, own enjoyment? Or is this something that you're asking, is this your will, God? Like, you've got a big house, fine. Or is it opened up to other people in the kingdom of God? I knew a doctor who was extremely wealthy. He had a, like a, he had a 10 bedroom house and he drove like a 15 passenger van around. 
But at all times, most of those bedrooms were filled with like people who like lost their house in something and needed to go like need to be stay with somewhere until they got another one. Missionaries were coming back to America just for a couple of months, but didn't want to get an apartment that kind of stuff before they went back again. It was it was always open, and he would go around to all these people and pick up all these kids in the neighborhood and take them to church with his fifteen passenger van. He'd take people to camp and that kind of stuff, and, and it was very clear that God had blessed him and he was using it. And so this is the question, and I can't answer any of these questions for you. I could barely answer them in my own life. But what we need to do is we need to sit down and say, what is your will for me? What is it your will for my house? And listen, it's not like you're never allowed to have a nice shirt that you like. <laughs> How can you use that shirt for the kingdom of God? We can push this extreme. Okay, It's not that you're not allowed to do any improvements to your house because there's a sense that that's an investment. And God has wants to give good gifts to his people. The best way to not accidentally swing into the extreme where it all just becomes for yourself or the other extreme where you just feel guilty for having like two pencils in your house when you only really need one, okay, is to really seek out the Holy Spirit and allow Him. And you just say like, we want to do this room edition and we are offering up to you, God. Is it your will? How do you envision this being used? Is this something that's just, you want to give us a good gift because you want us to enjoy it? And you know that we need this in order to like, not be stressed out in life and it will help us relax and it'll help us to be better in the kingdom of God? Or is this something that you're saying, build it because I want you to invite other people over and to use it. I want to buy this thing. How are you going to use it? Yes, I've got a kind of an expensive laptop, but I use it a lot for the ministry of God. Like I do so many things on it to get my stuff out there. The thing is, that's the question we get. I can't answer this. I can't tell you where the line is. There is no line. There is no 10-step process. There is no check litmus test to fill out to figure out what. All there is is, Holy Spirit, this is what I desire. Your will be done, not my will be done. What do you want me to do? And as long as you're doing that with everything, that's the most that can be expected of you. And I'm not going to sit here and make you feel guilty for having things or reward you in your stress of having things. All Jesus is saying is, give it to him. It, you, your dream. I had this dream of going over to this college and doing this career. Fine, give it to God. Deny it. Deny that you're just doing this for your own desires. Take up your cross and put it on there and crucify it to Christ and say, what do you want me to do? You know, most of the time he'll probably give it back to you. He'll say, yes, I gifted you. I built you to be good in this area. I gave you this desire. This is a good college that will help you develop that. And I want you to go there and you're going to use this and be good. That's all that he's saying here. Nowhere should we ever get this idea that God wants to take everything from you and just have you live in absolute poverty. Nor should we just have this idea that God has blessed me, therefore I can have whatever I want. Because sometimes he does, and sometimes he does take everything away from you for the kingdom of God. And only he knows. And so the question I'm asking is, is this my dream, or have I given it over to God? Is this plan mine, or have I given it over to God? Where do you see yourself in five years? I don't know. Because God has a way of going mm, 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 to all your plans. 
In fact, the more I plan out into the future, the more I'm not really trusting God because God doesn't work in 10-year plans and five-year plans. He typically works in one week, sometimes one-hour plans. And so the real goal here is, am I giving this to him? Everything, my plans, my goals, my dreams. And sometimes we'll give them back to you, but at least now you know you have a clear idea of how he's going to use this and why it's good, and therefore you can be confident that you're actually pursuing this for the right reasons and not just because, well, I really just wanted it, but I kind of justified it. That was biblical, but be back in my, back in my mind, I don't really know for sure. Now you do. And sometimes he'll take it away and say no. But he always promises to give you something better. Now, it may not be physical, but it'll be something better. That'll bring joy and peace and hope. And this is what Christ is saying. You are to be a living sacrifice, Romans 12, to God. And this is just much for me as well. I, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but I feel like with the things that are changing our economy right now, everything that I am saying and I believe is now being pushed through the strainer. And God is saying, okay, do you really believe this now? Because there's a really good chance that America is going to cease to be what we, know, we have known it for a long time. Not, I'm not saying it's the end of the world. just saying, but what the comforts that we've had could be going away. They may not, but they could be. And so the question is, do we really believe this? And are we really truly doing this? And that's what Christ is saying. Filter everything through me first. And this is what it really means. Anything that you want, ask it in Jesus' name. And some people have actually said, well, if I just throw Jesus' name at the end, it's like a magical wand thing, a stamp of approval. But what it really means is according to my character, because names represent character. And so anything that you pray in my character, in my will, it'll be done. But if it's not in my character and it's not in my will, it will not be done. And so this is what he says to them. And he's not asking you to do anything that he hasn't already done. Because he's going to go to the cross and die the most horrific physical death ever and experience the most horrific separation from God that anybody has ever experienced. And he's going to say, I don't want to die, but not my will, but your will. And God took that away and said, no, I don't want you to live. But he gave him something better. It was called resurrection and vindication and sitting on the right hand of God and the redemption of all of his people and the redemption of his creation. That's what Jesus is saying here. This is very important. A lot of people miss this. So verse 27, he says, But I tell you, most certainly, there are some of you standing here who will not experience death before they see the kingdom of God. A lot of people have said, including some of the disciples, like, ooh, this means none of us are going to die until the King of God comes back. And then they all died before the King of God came back. And then a lot of atheists and critics of the Bible say, see, Jesus lied. He didn't get it right. The kingdom of God, like, revelation hasn't happened yet, the second coming of Jesus Christ, and they all are dead. But what is very important is context, context, context. Now, I get how people miss this because the Gospels are very episodic. Many of these have nothing to do with each other. When we go from one paragraph to the next paragraph, 
Very rarely do they have anything to do with it. And every scholar agrees that the order of Luke's thing are arranged differently than Matthew's order and that kind of stuff. So between all four Gospels, it's very clear that there's not a very specific order that's going on here, except for this. This passage and the next one are is the only two passages in the entire, all the Gospels, that record this, where they're both back-to-back. Most passages, most things are like, Episodic narratives are in different orders. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these two episodes are back-to-back. And they're not just back-to-back, they're grammatically linked. They're literally linked. Because it says, he said that you're not going to experience death until you see the kingdom of God. 28. Now, about eight days after he said this, this directly links these two episodes in a very specific chronological order of events. And that is the key. About eight days later, after saying this, is the key to correctly understanding and interpreting verse 27. Jesus took with him Peter, John, and James, and went up into the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed, and his clothes became very bright, a brilliant white, And then two men, Moses and Elijah, began talking with them, and they appeared in glorious splendor and spoke about his departure that he was about to carry out in Jerusalem. What did they just see? The kingdom of God on earth. They literally saw Jesus turn into the Shekinah glory of God. If you don't get any more kingdom than that, I don't know what is the kingdom of God. They saw the second member of the Trinity reveal his godhood and all of its glory right in front of them. Peter, James, and John. Eight days later, Jesus' prophecy came true. Some of you, three of you specifically, are not going to die until you see the kingdom of God. Then eight days later, they saw the kingdom of God. Direct fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus did not lie. He did not mislead. It's not metaphorical. It's very literal, and it happened eight days later. And that's important to understand the significance of this. He is the Shekinah glory of God. In Egypt, they were in slavery, and then God revealed himself through this giant pillar of fire. But all they got to see was a pillar of fire. It was the glory of God. It was the appearance of God. Later, we're going to see the exact glory of God show up in Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is going to say that it was the likeness of the appearance of the glory of God. Meaning, it wasn't God. It was actually his glory. But it wasn't his glory. It was his appearance. But it wasn't really his appearance. It was his likeness. Because he was so disconnected from God as a sinner that he couldn't come into the full presence of God without the blood atonement of Christ. So all they got to see was this giant pillar of fire when they looked at God because of their sin, because of the material realm and the limitations of the dimensions that they were in. And so this is what led them through the wilderness and led them through Egypt. Then God promises that one day he would pour his spirit upon them. So then Jesus comes along and he gives them a much more intimate, deeper, higher revelation review, re- reveal of the glory of God. Because now they're not just seeing fire, they're seeing the person of Jesus Christ the incarnation of God himself in the midst of this fire. And so he's taking the pillar of fire that Moses got to see 
and he's pushing it to a much deeper level. And so in some ways, Peter, John, and James is getting to see more of God than Moses ever did on Mount Sinai. They get to actually walk with God and live with God and eat with God in a way that Moses never did. And this is why Jesus says that the greatest in the old covenant is least compared to the least. Sorry, the least in the new covenant is greater than the greatest in the old covenant. Moses was pretty great. But he's not going to experience God in his physical life in the same way that we, through the Holy Spirit, can. And so Peter, James, and John are getting a whole new revelation on what this Shekinah glory of God is. And so Jesus, at this point, is making absolutely clear, I am God. And he's not God because he walked up on a mountain and the glory kind of like recharged his like glow in the darkness like Moses and came back down. But the longer he was away from God, the more it faded. And so he goes back and gets up and gets recharged again. They're going to actually see Jesus be the glory of God, not because he's reflecting it, but because he's exuding it. And then it says that Moses and Elijah appear next to him. You're like, well, why those? I mean, we know that Moses and Elijah are played up more than any other prophecy in the entire Bible. But there's got to be more of a reason just than God played them up more than anybody else in the entire Bible. And the reason is these two men bookend the beginning and the end of the prophets, the entrance and the exit out of the promised land. Moses is the first exodus. He's the exodus out of Egypt into the promised land. And for the first time ever, after hundreds of years of God promising Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Judah, and all these people who were in Egypt, I'm going to give you the promised land. I'm going to give you the promised land. At the very end of Moses' life, they enter the promised land, and finally that promise is completely fulfilled. And Moses considered the prophet that led them there, the prophet that gave them the law, the prophet that gave them the sacrificial system, the prophet that gave them the tabernacle, the three parts of the Mosaic Covenant. And they went into the land, and they got to experience the blessings of God in the land. Now, many, many, many prophets came after Moses. But then, when we get to Elijah in chapter 17 of 1 Kings, they're at the end of their life. Not in a literal sense, but in a covenant blessing kind of a sense. Because they have become so evil and so wicked and walked away from God so much that Elijah comes and he does a second exodus. And we've talked about this if you went through Kings with me. So this exodus, Elijah now leaves the promised land. They're not leaving Egypt to go into the promised land. He's leaving the promised land. But this time, he's not taking Israel with him. Nobody goes with him. Which means Israel has become the new Egypt. And Ahab, the recurrent king, has become the new Pharaoh. And they're the wicked ones now. They're the ones that everybody must mass exit out of. I mean, they're so wicked and so evil that nobody goes with Elijah. He doesn't lead a nation of people after a Passover meal. He goes on his own. And then who does he go to? The Gentiles. Which means they become like the new promised land. Not that Phoenicia is going to become the new literal physical promised land, but in a going to a new people group to be a new people of God, I'm going there. But Israel doesn't get the message. They don't get the metaphor that God is communicating here that you've become the new Egypt and this is the new Exodus and none of you went with God. And in fact, when he comes back, 
you still are not with God. And then when he does the fire coming down the mountain, a lot of you throw yourself down and begin to worship God, but that doesn't even last a couple of weeks before you start hooking up with Ahab again to kill the prophets and all this kind of stuff. And so Elijah marks the beginning of the end. Yes, they will be in the land for another hundred-something years before the exile finally comes, but it's the end of the covenant blessings. What Elijah's doing is saying that in Deuteronomy, he said, if you obey me, then I will send the rains and you'll have an abundance of life. But if you disobey me, then I will bring the plagues of Egypt on you. I do not play favorites. And, and I will bring first famine. And if you don't repent, then I will bring oppression from foreign armies. And if you don't repent, then I will remove you from the land. Just as I did the Canaanites. I do not play favorites. You're my chosen people, but you're not special. They have been experiencing the covenant blessings. Yes, there are times they got oppressed, but then a revival would happen and that kind of stuff. And yes, a famine would come, then a revival would happen. But when we get to Elijah, he brings a revival and nobody responds. Well, some people do, but the nation as a whole doesn't. It means at this point, the covenant blessings are gone. And we begin this cycle into famine without any restoration, oppression without any restoration, and then eventually exile. And so he becomes the beginning of the end of the promised land that leads 100 years later to their exit out of the promised land. What these two guys represent is the beginning of the covenant promises in the land and the end of the covenant promises of the land. They are the bookends to Israel's covenant blessings in the land of Egypt. They both had an exodus. Moses led an exodus where people went with him, but they immediately turned on God and complained and grumbled. And then they worshiped a golden calf, and then they refused to enter the promised land. Elijah led an exodus that no one followed. And now they're both sitting there, and it says they begin to talk to Jesus about his exodus. His exodus from life to the cross. His exodus that will bring a new kind of people into the kingdom of God. The Jews and the Gentiles, the sick and the healthy, the wealthy and the poor, the men and the women, the free and the slaves. And this is a new exodus. But where Moses and Elijah failed, because remember, Moses was great, but he still did not trust God. And he said, must we bring you miracles and water from the rock? putting himself on the same level with God. And he did not get to go in the promised land. And Elijah finally did some cool things. But at the very end, God says, okay, I want you to do some other things. And Elijah says, I'm done. I quit. And God says, fine, you quit. Then I'm going to take you outside the promised land. And he took him off the, the surface of the ground outside the promised land. And there's never life outside the promised land. And so they both failed, ultimately, in the end. And Israel didn't go with them. And so now Jesus is coming as the greater exodus, the greater promised land prophet. And he's going to die on the cross. And he's going to bring the Holy Spirit, which is going to give us an exodus from our sin. Like Paul says in Romans 6, we are enslaved to sin and death. And then Romans 8 we have been made alive in the Holy Spirit. And you have been sealed in the Holy Spirit. And neither life nor death nor heaven nor hell nor anything above or below can separate us from the love of God. And Jesus is going to bring an exodus that's going to exodus out of our slavery to sin and death and give us the Holy Spirit that's going to heal, seal us. 
And we will stay in the promised land for all eternity. The spiritual promised land, the spirit living in us, and the physical promised land when Christ comes back the second time. And we will dwell with him for all eternity. And once he has sealed us, no one can break that or separate it. I am convinced that he who began a good work in you will finish it until its completion. And so Jesus is going to become the greater prophet, the greater exodus, and bring a greater promised land. And these two prophets represent the failure of humans and the success of Christ as the greater one. And this is significant. It's not like, ooh, look, he's honoring them by putting them next to him. It's like, no, look, he's going to go beyond them. He's going to go beyond them. God never, ever puts you down. Remember, all the points of the people failing is not to make the point like, oh, let's make all these prophets and these people are a whipping boy and bash them and make fun of them because they all suck and they all fail. That was never the point of the Bible. The point of the Bible is to point out that they all fail, so don't put your ultimate hope in them. The only one that deserves your ultimate hope is God and Christ. So they're not up here to be whipping boys, but they are up here as a contrast to the greaterness of Christ. As a greaterness of Christ. Does this make sense? Peter totally misunderstood this. He says, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter, just stop filling in the blanks. Just <laughs> As he was saying this, a cloud came down and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And then a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. And after the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, so he kept silent and told no one the time of anything that had been seen. At this point, in the other Gospels, Jesus rebukes him. And here's why he rebukes him. You're like, well, why is that so bad? He just wants to build tents and hang out a little bit longer. Like, wouldn't you want to do that? I mean, yeah, Jesus is great in the prophets, but these are still dead prophets that have come back, and they're still pretty great, and they're still your brothers in Christ. Like, don't you want, like, I would love to talk to them still. Like, this is pretty awesome. But what he doesn't realize is that this is the festival of booths. And the festival of booths or tabernacles um, or tents, depending on what synonymous word you want to use, is where you would set up these tents and you would live in them for seven days to represent the fact that they wandered in the wilderness and then they had no home. And then on the eighth day they would go, or seven days, and then the eighth day they would go back into the real home to represent that the kingdom of God will come one day and they'll have a permanent dwelling with God. Peter says this because he's thinking, like, this is it. The kingdom of God is here. So at least he realizes, like, wait, Jesus said it. Well, we won't die until we see the kingdom of God. And now I see the kingdom of God. So let's build tents and stay here. But what Jesus is saying is, no, 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 no. The kingdom of God can't come to earth until I die. Remember when I said I had to die, but you said I was wrong? Well, you're still wrong, Peter. You still didn't get it. I still have to die first. The kingdom of God cannot be sealed and locked in on this material realm until I die. And that's why Peter's wrong, because he still doesn't get what Jesus has to do. The other thing he's wrong is he wants to build three booths for each of them as if they're equal with each other. As if they're equal with each other. He still just sees Jesus as, he sees him as the anointed Messiah. But remember, Moses and Elijah got pretty close. And he sees them as pretty equal. And this is what he mess, misses. And then the voice of God comes down a second and final time. 
and says, Then a voice came down saying, This is my son whom I chose, and listen to him. Now the first thing he said, This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. But now they hear God saying, Obey him. Obey him. God is making his approval very clear. And they kept silent until no one. Because how are you going to explain that to people? This is significant. This is one of the first major significant moments in Jesus' journey to Jerusalem because it's going to connect to some other things. This is where some major prophecies are going to start coming true. Keep this in your mind as we get to the next connection will be chapter 19. So yes, you have to wait 10 chapters. Verse 37. Now on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a large crowd met them, and a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He is an only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into convulsions and causes him to foam at the mouth. It hardly ever leaves him alone, torturing him severely. I beg your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. Jesus answered, You unbelieving, perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you and endure you? You see his patience running out. Bring your son here. As the boy was approaching, the demon threw him down to the ground and shook him with convulsions. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Then they were all astonished at the mighty power of God. They lacked the faith. Now this is important because they were able to do this earlier when they went out on their own for several weeks. They came back and proclaimed how amazing it was that the demons obeyed them. But now they can't do this. Here's my guess. When they went out, they were alone. And it was just them and God and these people. And they were doing things. It was pretty amazing. And they spent a lot of nights all by themselves in isolation. A lot of times to think to themselves. And then they would go out and do amazing things with God and they'd go back home and they'd be all by themselves in some tent in the middle of the wilderness or in the forest or outside of a city. And then they would go out and do God and they'd come back and just be by themselves again. Now they've come back and they've been with each other for a while. And the good old competition is kicking back in. The good old jockeying for power is kicking back in. The Pharisees are there again reminding them that it's all about scorekeeping and status positioning. And they're falling right back into this, but I, 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 want, I want to be the greatest. I want to be a part of Jesus' inner circle. Maybe now that James and Peter and John got to see something that they didn't get to see, there's some jealousy there. And now they're trying to jockey into the inner circle. You can't blame them. One, is human nature. And two, then the Pharisees have modeled this to them their entire life. You can't just change within a year or two, especially without the Spirit of God indwelling them. All they can think about is, I got to do this better than John. Or I got to prove myself. Or I've done this before. I can do it again. <laughs> Remember even Moses, all the great things he experienced and stuff, and God says, Speak to the rock. And Moses didn't obey God and speak to the rock. He appealed to what worked last time. Oh, I've done this before. And when I struck it, it worked. So now I'm going to give it two strikes. And we tend to appeal like, Oh, I was able to do this before. I was able to teach this thing or do this music before or lead this worship service before. And it was pretty awesome. And you do that enough times successfully and you begin to think that you're actually able to do this and not realizing the reason that was so successful and so powerful is because the Spirit of God was working through you. 
And they're probably going, and there's something about competition. There's something about keeping up with the Joneses. There's something about comparing yourself with other people that allows us to thrive even more. There's something about isolation that kind of keeps you from going into this. Now, I'm not promoting hermits or monasteries, but there is a balance here. And so Jesus is upset because he's like, you should, how do we have to go over this again? It's like when I tell my, my wife, like, how many times do I have to tell our girls this? And my wife's answer always is all of them. This is what Jesus is feeling. Like, oh my goodness. I thought we learned this lesson. Now, I'm not saying that to diminish Jesus like, like he doesn't know how long it's going to take for them. I'm not trying to say that. It's just All we have is human language to describe this stuff. They're not, they're, they're not able to really truly keep this growth going consistently. And that's just like us. But the entire crowd was amazed at everything Jesus was doing. He said to the disciples, take these words to heart. For the Son of Man is going to be betrayed in the hands of men. This is the second time he talks about his death. But they did not understand the statement. Its meaning had been concealed from them. So they could not grasp it. Yet they were afraid to ask him about this statement. Now we don't know why it was concealed from them. The, the gospel writer doesn't make, was it concealed from them because of their own arrogance and ignorance or whatever, whatever, whatever? Or was it concealed from them because the Holy Spirit intentionally concealed it from them? But either way, they didn't get what he was taking. They don't understand why he has to die. But it's also to understand that Jesus isn't some pessimist sadomasochist who's obsessed with his own death in some kind of jacked-up false prophet sense either. When he's talking about his death obsessively, this isn't some dark, morbid obsession with death that he has. If he was just some guy who ends up dying and then they buried him and he stayed there, then you'd be like, okay, you have this morbid obsession with your own death. But the fact that this is going to lead to the redemption of humanity and the exodus from our enslavement to sin and the resurrection of Christ back into life and his vindication to be set on the right hand of God that will allow a Holy Spirit to indwell us and give us life forever means that this isn't morbid fascination with death. This is a plan to build something. And that's important to understand because a lot of people have accused Jesus of being gothic and self-absorbed and obsessed with a fatalistic suicidal tendency and it's like did you read the rest of luke and acts romans peter like no and i know i don't have to tell you that but the audience is pretty big verse 46 they still haven't learned. Now the argument started among the disciples as to which of them might be the greatest. This makes it very clear why their faith wasn't there. But when Jesus discerned their innermost thoughts, he took a child, they had stand by his side, and he said to them, whoever welcomes this child in my name will welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes one of the sent for me. For the one who is the least among you is also the one who is the greatest. Now this, it would have been a devastating blow. Children were not valued beyond just one day you'll grow up. <laughs> they, they had the, the idea of teaching them and discipling them and apprenticing them. They were just children got in the way. And, and they, they, were, 
they were undisciplined, they were they didn't listen to you, they got in the way, they were not the future of humanity, that kind of stuff. Children are the future. They didn't think that way. Children were just in the way, they were incompetent, they were not intelligent, they were dumb and foolish and clumsy, and you just tolerated them because one day, if you shoved enough scripture down their throat and gave them enough teachings, then when they heard 12, hit 12 years old, they finally might be able to remember something you say, and you could start discipling them into some apprenticeship or something else, and then one day they would finally be an adult. And then, then, they would start to have value in the community. Then it was worth discipling them. Then it was worth teaching them. So now you have these 30-something, 40-something-year-old men who are like, ooh, you've been chosen by Jesus. And they're arguing over who's going to be the greatest. And they, they're 30 years old, which means they have the right to be a leader over other people. They've lived life. They've experienced things. They've been chosen by Jesus. And Jesus grabs some random little child that's just an insignificant, you're-in-the-way kind of thing and says, this is what matters. This is what can also be a disciple. This is faith. It's that, that faith where, where little kids want nothing more than to please you. Every little picture they bring to you, like, Daddy, Daddy, look at what I did. Let Daddy look at this. Daddy, look at this. Daddy, look at da 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 And all they want to do is nothing more than to please you, and you're there here in their mind. And then they hit the teenage years, and they realize that you're not perfect, that you are flawed, that you have limitations, that there's something outside the home. And this, this is a good thing. It's, it's, not a, it's not a good thing if it goes to an extreme in rebellion and disrespect, but it is a good thing because they need to know that you're not God and you are flawed. Because if they never discover that you're not God and that you're not flawed, that you are flawed and that you need Christ, if they never discover that, they'll never see their need for Christ. One of the most horrific things that you could ever do to a child is never let them see that you need Christ. Because then when you talk about their need for Christ, they won't listen. When you, you lift out yourself superior to them without any faults and without any apologies, then they just see that and they say, well, well, they're not, well if you don't need God and you're not paying attention to your words, I don't need it either. This is what Jesus is saying. No, 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 no. These, these are the least in your eyes, but they're the greatest in my eyes because they have this faith like a child. They want nothing more to please God. But you're too busy trying to please yourself and look good in front of everybody else. But all this kid wants to do is be loved and be accepted and to please me. And that is what makes them great in the kingdom of God. You look at them at the least, but I see them as the greatest because of their childlike faith. And I know he's not saying all that here, but he says it in another passage, and we can rightfully connect these two things. And that's what he's calling us to. Do we have that heart and desire that we want nothing more than to please God and to make him happy and to seek his approval and acceptance? Or are we allowing other things to jockey for our attention and our life? That's the point that he's making. Verse 49. John answered. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is a he's not a disciple like us. We saw somebody else invoking your name and trusting in you and having faith in you and doing your will and casting out demons through the power of God. But we tried to stop him because he wasn't special like us. He wasn't part of the inner circle. Do you remember when Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees for doing the same thing to Jesus, trying to stop him? Because he wasn't chosen by them and part of the inner circle. And now they're acting like the Pharisees. 
Oh, the power of the culture is powerful in us. No matter how much Bible reading we do, and no matter how much we're with God and how much we've learned, the little amount that we do cannot compete with the hours of the world that is shoved down our throats. It can with the power of the Holy Spirit, but only if you allow it. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. Forever is not against you, it's for you. I don't care that he's not part of my inner circle. He's doing the will of God. You see him as a known name. I see him as doing the will of God. That's all that matters. Joel Green says this, The failure of the disciples is represented at its most basic level in this. Jesus had implored the disciples to honor those of no status of all, but they have refused partnership with one who did not share the status that they assumed for themselves. This is what it really comes down to. Keeping up with the Jones. Scorekeeping. What is my status compared to your status? We can't help but think like this, either consciously or subconsciously. Always wanting to fit in. Always wanting seeking approval or acceptance. Always measuring up to some standard of expectation. When, when Jesus, the only thing he's just saying is, do you love me? And do you love those I love? It's all that matters. Do you want to know me? And do you want to know those that I love? That's all that matters. And he's going to keep hitting this harder and harder and harder. 